And I wonder if in some ways stories that are this mythic and this multivalent as far as in all the meanings that they have in them are unfillable. I'm William O'Flaherty. Welcome to the All About Jack podcast on the Knowing and Understanding C.S. Lewis YouTube channel. Today I have a mini panel discussion on the issue of Narnia and Netflix. Is Greta Gerwig a good or bad choice? This was recorded October 17th, 2023, when I was visiting the Marion E. Wade Center at Wheaton College. My guests are Drs. Crystal Downey, Terry Glaspie, and Charlie Starr. All three are either very familiar with film and are the arts in general, as well as being respected authors. Quick note, while I don't tend to talk too much during my shows, on the day of this recording, I was somewhat hoarse, which is especially noticeable by the end of the program. Welcome back to All About Jack Crystal. Thank you. It's great to be here. Terry, it's good to have you. Oh, I'm so, it's such a pleasure to be with you today. And Charlie, it's always good to have you. And fun as always for me too, William. Well, now let's start with movies by Greta other than Barbie. What have you seen and what did you think of it? I've seen both Lady Bird and Little Women. I thought they were done very well. And there is a spiritual element in Lady Bird that intrigued me. So I am hopeful about Greta Gerwig and her future filmmaking. Yeah, I, I would totally agree with you, Crystal, on that. I thought Lady Bird was one of my favorite films the year it came out. And it it is a growing up, coming of age story that has just profound spiritual searching as part yes. of what's going on in the yes. story. And I think it's handled in such an intriguing way and with the, this kind of openness that um, if you're not a believer, you can find it intriguing. Mm -hmm. And if you're a believer, you can kind of find it affirming. Mm -hmm. um, and I also, I also loved uh, Little Women. I thought it was a, just such a well-written, well-acted adaptation uh, of a great book. And, and that gives me hope for her ability to adapt yes. uh, something well. I was thinking in terms of her Little Women compared to the one that came out over a decade prior with Winona mm -hmm. Ryder in it. Mm -hmm. And that earlier one, which was gorgeous, um, is very chronological, um, I'm sure like the novel. But then Greta, in her adaptation, broke chronology. Um, she applied some very nice film structural techniques. So it comes across as far more cinematic than that earlier one. Um, and so I did find little, Her Little Women to be really quite delightful. Mm -hmm. And so that does really speak to the idea of adaptation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You can't do book on film unless you're making something for PBS that's going to be 16 hours long and nobody's going to want to watch it. Right. right? Uh, but you can... To successful adaptation, and uh, and so there mm. we, we at least have one from her already. Right. Yeah, I, I I I so agree with you. I mean, I know there are those who are concerned about you know who think well the Chronicles of Narnia these are like holy writ, mm -hmm. these are like stand next to the Bible. Yeah. Don't touch them. Don't change them. 
But the very, the very art of adaptation is the art of taking thing from one medium and taking it to another medium. And it always means there's going to have to be some adaptation. Right. And the artistry yeah. of that filmmaker will, for good or bad, and uh, maybe a little of both, will definitely come into play. Mm -hmm. Well, the famous um, instigator of the French New Wave, Truffaut, liked to quote the filmmaker Carlo Rim, who said that an honest adaptation is a betrayal. And there's two meanings at insofar as what Charlie just said, an honest adaptation, if you try to go chronologically include every single scene, that is not film adaptation, that's just a visualization of a novel. Film is a different medium. Mm -hmm. So an mm -hmm. honest so that betrays film mm -hmm. and an honest adaptation um, is a betray then has to be a betrayal of the original source material. Mm -hmm. And that's makes it honest. And even the word betrayal is um, has this, this tie to tradition insofar as tradition means handing over. And so both in the Greek and in um, the Latin versions of the Bible, we have the exact same word for Judas's betrayal of Jesus. He handed Jesus over to the authorities, but the same root word is used for, and Jesus handed over to us these words. Mm -hmm. And Paul, um, he handed over then the, the paradigm for the Last Supper. So this whole idea of betrayal and tradition, they are etymologically related. That's interesting. Interesting. Very I, interesting. I will say that I was hopeful when I heard that Netflix was going to take it over, that they might take a Game of Thrones approach or extended edition Lord of the Rings approach and give me a nice long version of an episodic version of the novels. Yes. Um, that's what I was hoping for. I, I truly have no idea what they're going to do. Right. Are they going to do a film or are they going to do episodes? I, I think it's episodic. I would love to see an episodic mm -hmm. version. But even then, you're still going to have to have adaptation. You, you oh, have to have right. adaptation. I remember someone asked Alfred Hitchcock, why didn't you ever film Crime and Punishment? And if you think about it, can you imagine Alfred Hitchcock filming Crime and Punishment? And But Hitchcock said... Why would I mess with a perfect novel? <laughs> you know, um, and and it's it's the fact that he was aware that he couldn't mm -hmm. do the same, th the exact same thing. And I I think anytime we adapt, change is going to be somewhat inevitable, whether subtle or big. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, let's um, go into adaptation some more in, in a moment. Let's go ahead and, and officially get on the on the board here then. Barbie, was it a good or a bad movie, and, and why do you think that? <laughs> well, I thought it was a great movie. Partly, she acknowledges her indebtedness to cinema. The opening scene is absolutely oh. brilliant, oh, where yes. she is quoting... Um, 2001 The Space Odyssey, where little girls are playing with their 
baby dolls and nursing them. And this is what it was like to be a little girl in the 60s, which I was. So I can, I can, as a woman, I can speak to how Greta Gerwig is addressing an historical phenomenon. But she is making clear that this is cinema. And so starting with that, the uh, quoting the opening scene of 2001 Space Odyssey, where little girls um, playing with their dolls, and then suddenly, rather than a monolith coming down, it's these legs and it's this gigantic uh, yes, Barbie yes, doll yes. and then and it's using the exact same music the famous music of 2001 Space Odyssey and the girls start pounding the rocks with their dolls the way the apes do at the start of 2001 and then one of the dolls is thrown up in the air as in 2001 and in 2001 it turns into a spaceship and this one the baby doll turns into Barbie it was brilliant. Absolutely. So she had me right there. And then she does put other references to film in. One, uh, when uh, Colin Firth plays Darcy from Pride and Prejudice, which was a, a series. No, it was a film. No. And then um, a reference to The Godfather. So she is acknowledging her medium. And you we need to acknowledge her medium as well. I'll say more later because I want to hear from the others of you. Well, I have to say, um, and some people will probably not appreciate this, but I loved it so much that I took my adult daughter mm. to see it. because I and, and she, like me, laughed, thought it was playful, creative throughout the set design. Oh my gosh, yes. the set designs are amazing even in it. And um, and it makes a powerful point about roles and relationships. And it doesn't it I don't think it's trying to put across some propagandistic message. It's just challenging us to think again about what does it mean to be a man and a woman and what how those roles are supposed to work right and and how that when people get stuck into role models that don't fit who they are as a person they react they mm -hmm. rebel and they have to find some way of dealing with that mm -hmm. so yeah i i i thought it i thought it was sneakily profound and mm -hmm. so clever mm -hmm. well and it was satire too totally. and a lot of yeah. people don't get satire like there's that famous incident where um someone responded to c.s lewis's um screw tape letters and wrote him and said well this advice is positively diabolic <laughs> and they didn't get that he was making fun right. of of and trying to illuminate the our own sinful natures. And Greta Gerwig was doing the same thing. She was not um, doing a simplistic feminist movie. No. She was satirizing feminism yeah. as well as male dominance. So she was satirizing both extremes. And people who don't get satire, as well as people who are oblivious to the medium of film, might be um, appalled by it, yeah. but that's because 
they aren't getting the subtlety. And satire has a very specific function. Satire is not comedy. It's just yes. funny. And the function of satire is always to, is always to tell um, a culture, here's how you look at the world, and it's stupid. <laughs> and here's why the way you look at the world is yes. stupid, right? Yes. Satire is there to, to um, break the conventions, to tell us that the way we see things is not necessarily how things are, um, and it, it, it's an ancient tradition. I think it was Leland Riken who argued that Jonah is a satire. Uh, uh, which, right or wrong, it's a great way to read the Book of Jonah. Right. But right. Uh, but then you get you know you get you get Lucian and and some of the Greeks and well uh, and Jonathan Swift's uh, modest proposal. Oh. <laughs> Every time I teach yes. it, when once I taught it at UCLA, so I had great students and they would come in. I go, I can't believe he's saying people should kill and eat their babies. They didn't get the satire. Modest proposal. Well, yeah. and that's and that's what has made um, something like. Um, something very pop culture like um, The Simpsons and Family Guy, successful is because mm -hmm. those guys are really good satirists. And ultimately, I don't know of any Terry Gilliam film. So that's, you know, mm. Terry Gilliam, Monty Python. I don't know of any Gilliam film, not just including Monty Python, that doesn't have some element of satire. Oh, in right. It. He's a true master. Right. Yeah. Yes, I yeah. agree. But yes. you have to learn what satire is for sure mm -hmm. in order to see what's going on. And if you don't understand it's satire... You immediately have, are in danger of moving to believing that it's propaganda. Exactly. That's Good. the very thin line you walk. Yes. And if your satire is not done well, it actually does sometimes function as propaganda. Mm -hmm. It's just like sticking mm -hmm. the nose face. But I love what you said, Crystal, about the fact that this was not about um, being for one side or the other. Right. It's so. If it, I think if you truly understand it's 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 just saying we are in a mess as a culture about our misunderstandings of maleness and femaleness mm -hmm. and uh this film reveals some of what that mess is about and makes us think about ways that we can begin to change that right right i i would say it's an excellent example of deconstruction and more and more christians are recognizing the profitability of Derrida's uh, <clears throat> establishing the importance of deconstruction, and which Derrida defines as openness to the other. And the, the trouble often with feminism is it does what people who have studied Derrida call invert the binary. In other words, there's been male supremacy for so long that many feminists came along and just, if you think of um, uh, in addition or in, um, how can I describe this? Uh, if you have one word and then a line and another word underneath, and so you just flip that. And so it used to be male supremacy, females underneath. And you flip it, feminist supremacy, and, you know, kind of the total dismissal of white chauvinist males. And Greta Gerwig is making clear that's not what she's doing. No. She wants to deconstruct it. It's both and rather than either or. And that's what deconstruction is about, both and thinking. Because the whole film is 
and I had never thought about it in those terms, but you're exactly right, is about that flipping. Yes. It's about when yes. Barbie land becomes run by the patriarchy, by the uh -huh. men, it completely changes and ruins Barbie land. Uh-huh. And they, uh, but they have to come back to this place of realizing they have to work together. Yeah. And they have to realize that the patriarchy is unfortunately not about horses. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> the film. Well, and Barbie Land, she's exposing that they are prejudicial, that only women can have right. important jobs, and the males are marginalized. So she's saying this is not the answer. Um, and theologians quite a while ago were... Uh, talking about this in terms of womenist theology, insofar as the trouble is feminism tended to be, the early times of feminism was white privileged women. And there was still no voice for black women. And so they even wanted to get rid of the term feminism and talk about womenist theology, a theology that wants to deconstruct these problematic either-or binaries. What, um, what you all reminded me of is the willingness of the Inklings to make fun of each other. Mm. Yes. And, mm -hmm. and a couple of things came to me. One is, uh, in the Notion Club papers, Tolkien references a book written, and, and the Tolkien and the Notion Club papers are set in the 80s which for Tolkien is the future. Right. right. <laughs> so there are all these dons sitting around, and Tolkien and Lewis are, are past and gone. But then um, one of them is talking about this book called Out of the Talkative Planet. That's good. And then I once heard uh, from the C.S. Lewis Foundation folks, when they do Oxbridge, um, they brought a choir in, and the choir sang every title of every Lewis book. Oh, funny. Um, and in some funny way, so that when they got to the problem of pain, it was, the problem of pain, the yeah. problem of pain, right, that sort of thing. We, a, couple, we oh, a couple of years ago, I wrote a, in recognition of the possibility of Lewis Olatry, mm -hmm. right, I wrote a, um, an essay on Lewis's use of the word and. Oh. Uh, 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 yeah, and, uh, CSL published it for me. And, yeah, uh, and good. The scary good. part is, I actually found stuff to say. So, <laughs> I think one of the problems we sometimes have as Christians these days is we have a hard time laughing at yeah. ourselves. Yeah. Like yes. you said, uh, as you pointed out, the inkling so well did. We are so afraid that if someone laughs, that they're laughing at us, oh. and 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 the if if we take ourselves so seriously, we actually can't learn. Mm. We can't be transformed mm -hmm. if we take ourselves too seriously. We're stuck in our own little self-created world. Mm -hmm. You know, the only time I met Walter Hooper, um, I asked him if I could take his picture, and he held his cat up, and I took his picture. Absolutely deadpan face. All pictures of Walter Hooper are absolutely deadpan. And I realized... You know, early I had thought, does this man, is he unhappy? Is he very serious as a Lewis scholar? The moment I met him, he said, hello, how are you? You know, mm -hmm. right invites me into the house. And he's just so kind. He's talking to his cat. No, you can't go outside. We have a guest. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, I went to take his picture. And at that moment, I realized, 
Oh, that is Walter smiling. Uh, <laughs> that is his happy face. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it's like if we're in it, if we create a little subculture where we're always looking for what's wrong and dangerous about the culture mm-hmm. at large. I'm not saying we don't need to be discerning. Of course we do. But if we create this culture where we're always afraid that um, that that our faith is somehow going to be marginalized, mm-hmm. it's like you know what, God is big mm-hmm. enough to take care of himself. Mm-hmm. Well, and part of what Greta is dealing with in this film is relevant to our culture now, totally apart from gender and sexual use. <clears throat> it's the polarization of our culture itself, yes. where these different sides are denouncing each other. And I am so concerned how Christians have bought into this polarization And I have met Christians who, rather than endorsing Paul's statement, for me to live is Christ, they endorse, for me to live is my party's political platform, and Christ is a prop that holds it up. So this message spreads to larger issues. But at the same time, I would want to encourage Christians who say, oh, it's just feminist ranting, that a lot of Christians don't realize how difficult it has been, especially for Christian women, in being taken seriously. And just let me, and this is why this film spoke so much to me, and I'll just give you, well, I'll give you three examples. One from when I was about 10 years old, and I was in Pioneer Girls, And I got the most badges at our award ceremony. When I came down the stage, the first thing my father said to me is, oh, he didn't say, oh, congratulations, Crystal, you got the most badges. He said, the way you were standing up there, it made you look so fat. Mm -hmm. That was the first thing he said to me. So here this generation of women who are told that they're supposed to look like Barbie dolls. And that that pressure on on them. Then, after um, I got my PhD, I applied to a Christian college, and in part of the application process, someone said to me, a male said to me, Christian college, said, Crystal, your recommendations from grad school are too good to be believed, and we wonder what you did to get them. Oh, wow. Oh, my goodness. And then my first year, now that was back in the 90s. So you could say, well, that was you know, a while ago. 2018, when I first arrived here, I went to a C.S. Lewis um, lecture and then a reception afterwards. I happened to be the only woman there, and someone brought up what is the cause of the polarization in our country. And I talked about the fact that Early capitalists, really, like Carnegie and Stanford and Rockefeller, they loved um, the Herbert Spencer, who coined the phrase, survival of the fittest. Darwin didn't invent that. He later borrowed it. And so they just celebrated Herbert Spencer. Yes, capitalism is about survival of the fittest. Well, survival of the fittest automatically creates what Tennyson called nature red in tooth and claw, you know, you're just trying to be the fittest. 
And so I said, you know, that may have contributed. And someone at the C.S. Lewis reception said, well, I think the reason our culture is so polarized is because of women demanding their rights. Mm, uh, mm, mm. Right after I had made my statement. So, just to be per very personal, the reason I took my daughter to Barbie is I wanted to I wanted to communicate a message. I wanted to communicate the message of I get mm. to at least some degree how hard it is to be a woman in our culture and the challenges you face. And I think this film also get, help you see some of the challenge of what it's like to be a male in Definitely. this culture. Definitely. Because yeah. that is really what the film is about. How culture, we're embedded cultures that perpetuate these ideas of what true manliness is, as well as true uh, femininity. So you're exactly right. She is commenting this is a, a problem and um, once again, back to Derrida and um, especially uh, another postmodern thinker, Foucault, who talked about how discursive practices shape our sense of reality. And the language in which we're embedded perpetuates this uh, certain behaviors. And so, sure, my dad comments on the way I look. And so by the time I get to high school and people are calling me a brainiac, so I started lying about my grades because I realized people, especially males, liked me if I was kind of a dumb blonde. I remember having a, a female student who, to me, seemed to be ashamed of how good she was academically. Yeah, yeah, because um, yeah, we just get I, that message. I told her that. I told her that. Don't. Don't be ashamed of, right. of, of that sort of thing. Barbie says we can break out of the prisons. We don't yes. have to be Barbie dolls and we don't have to be Ken dolls. Mm -hmm. Well, I think well, the other thing that Foucault brought us was and was substitution of power for truth in discourse, right? So if, if, we're, if we're going to abandon truth at the middle of the 20th century, we're going to have to replace it with something. So we're going to replace it with power politics and power discourse. Well, then that is going to, that is going to add to the creation of us versus them mentality. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> and so I see, and this is relevant to whether Gerwig can handle the, the Narnia stories as a director, a, a fundamentally spiritual implication, and I saw it as being pretty explicit in Barbie, but what we're talking about now is our polarized culture, uh, the either-or and the fundamental principle of Christian orthodoxy is that Jesus was not either-or. Jesus was both and, both yes. fully God and fully human. And we hear it so much, we kind of take it for granted, and we forget how this is the model. It's um, Dorothy Sayers calls um, the Imago Dei, so we are created in the image of God. She says it's the image, lowercase i, of the image, uppercase i, which was Jesus as God incarnate, of the unimaginable. And we'll get more into Narnia specifically here in a bit. But uh, earlier there were comments related to adapt, you know, how a book isn't 
adapted into a movie are, are the challenges. So let's let's go ahead and delve into that before we do very specifically uh, have everyone address is Greta good for good or bad for Narnia? But again, before getting to that, how is a book adapted into a movie anyway, and what makes it good? I think a little bit of some of the old BBC uh, Jane Austens, which have their charms. You know, I've watched most of those old BBC Jane Austens, and I love Jane Austen. But there's something a little bit flat Mm. because they are this line-for-line, as you said, Charlie, this line-for-line adaptation. They they try to get everything from the story in. And I think how, with all their faults, some of the more contemporary and more playful adaptations, for example, Sense and Sensibility, yes, have, been, have been just actually so much more fun and so much more enjoyable and actually have been in some ways more meaningful to me mm-hmm. because they've taken the novel and then they've let the, the person who adapts it by writing the screenplay and they've let the director create something that allows them to bring their own artistry and their own creativity mm-hmm. into the mix. And so if you have a bad director directing uh, Narnia, then I, I'm very worried. But if you have a good director, I may not like every choice she makes, but I'm really interested to see what choices she makes. And I am willing to bet that she will actually build my, even though she won't go literally uh, word by word, she'll actually build a new level of enjoyment and appreciation for Nani and for mm-hmm. me. Let me just um, remind you that the film adaptation of The Voyage of the Dawn Treader had a good director. Well, okay. <laughs> All right. he was, he, he's a good director, but it was not a good... Right. Nor a good well, adaptation. Well, are these stories... Are these stories almost unfilmable? Well, I mean, you look at question. you yeah. look at the cartoon version, you know, not good. You look at the BBC version, it had some charms, but kind of flat. You look at uh, the the more contemporary films, none of them really terrific films. And I wonder if, in some ways, stories that are this mythic and this um, multivalent as far as in all the meanings that they have in them are are unfilmable. I don't know. The reason I'm just asking. Yeah, the reason I want to say no is because I felt that Peter Jackson gave us faithful adaptations, decent adaptations. Mm-hmm. But I, maybe but it's some just people my were dismayed that like, Tom Bombadil was totally left out, have, and he couldn't have been put in. Right, that is adaptation. But what yeah. what the thing that I learned that really taught me that film is not novel is yeah. that I saw John Huston's last film, the last film that he directed, oh. with his daughter Angelica Houston. And it was um, a movie of a um, Yeats short story. Huh. The Dead, I think is the name uh, of the yeah, right? Yeah. And it covered the entire short story. Mm-hmm. Nothing was left out. Mm-hmm. And it was 90 minutes long, and that's when I realized a 20-page short story is a 90-minute film, mm. and that, that's what made me more hopeful about um, you know, an episodic approach to Narnia. Mm. But there is something about Narnia. Lord of the Rings worked. I actually liked Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe film, mm-hmm. the, Ad- the Adams film. I, I thought it had its weaknesses as far as filmmaking, but I, it totally moved me. 
Yeah. And I loved it. Yeah. But, but, but they kept getting worse farther and farther away from yeah. the text. Yeah. <laughs> farther away from adaptation. Um, that yeah, by by Dr. But again, an honest adaptation is a betrayal. And I think part of the problems with the others were an oversight that, well, you have to just include um, what you can. And they made changes. Um, and I speak from having talked to someone who was involved with the oversight of the Narnia movies. And he was just saying, oh, I couldn't believe it when I got the first script and the, the whole movie uh, began with a helicopter um, going over uh, Los Angeles with this statue of Big, Big Lion. And he said, you know, that has nothing to do with uh, Narnia. But I'm a film theorist, and that is quoting Fully the neat. opening scene yeah. of La Dolce Vita, yes, yes, where yeah. a helicopter is carrying a statue of Jesus Christ over the city of Rome. I mean, that would have been, to anybody who knew film, that would have been a powerful presentation which would have that been almost, Aslan... Yeah, but which would have been no one, almost no one in your audience. That I, yeah, I, but I let them become more educated in film yeah, then. I, like, I really why wanna, is it there? I really want to push back, though, uh, and I want to do it by going to Lord of the Rings. When you, when you, especially when you look at the behind-the-scenes uh, material, there were so many times that Peter Jackson said, well, you know, we could do this, or we could do this. One, a really strong question was, can you really have a villain like Sauron and not have him appear to fight against Aragorn? And so they, the, the ogre that Aragorn fights at the end was going to be Sauron. But then they decided to be faithful to Tolkien. Mm -hmm. And it was always, and, and that's why the Hobbit movies are so bad by comparison, is because there was that desire to say, we're going to rein ourselves in, we're going to trust Tolkien. And I feel like if they had done that for Prince Caspian and Dawn Treader, they could have been more successful. So mm -hmm. I, I, I feel like there has to be something said for faithful adaptation. Yeah. Well, the trouble is even Tolkien didn't honor his own process. Like the first edition of The Hobbit, he changed it after he started writing Lord of the Rings because he realized he has to accommodate this new instantiation of his medium. And here at the Wade, we have one of those rare, rare first editions of The Hobbit because they were all in a warehouse that was bombed mm -hmm. by the Nazis. And so you can see what he did at first, but he himself saw the need to change. And yet, <laughs> after he wrote The Lord of the Rings, he went to rewrite the entire Hobbit. Not just one chapter in The mm -hmm. Hobbit, but the entire book um, to try to give it the feel of the epic quality of the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, he I know. He sent that to, to a friend, um, an unnamed woman, who wrote back and said, well, it's very good, but it's not The Hobbit. Uh -huh. And so he yeah. abandoned it. Mm -hmm. And so he stopped trying to mm -hmm. do that. So um, I really felt like the difference between Peter Jackson's LOTR movies and his Hobbit movies is he let Tolkien rein him in in the Lord of the Rings films, but with the others he mm -hmm. didn't. I mean, there's still plenty of adaptations. Well, part yeah. of the problem of adaptations is, um, <clears throat> and this is how I deal with it in my book on film, is um, externalizing the internal. 
So a real mm-hmm. lazy mm-hmm. film director will do a lot of voiceovers mm-hmm. because how do you show what process a person is going through, is thinking about? Mm-hmm. And another one of the real cheesy, and this has become a trope and it's just a bad trope, is directors, if they want to show someone is upset, they have them go barf. And you just see that in TV shows, films, because they don't. How do we quickly show someone being upset rather than their mental process of, you know, I can't believe that person said that to me and I can't believe I said. And um, so either the voiceover or the, you know, quick little vomit scene is problematic. So how do you externalize the internal? And that is what a film adapter has to, to think about. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll give a shining moment from from um, Jackson, and that is when Gollum is falling to his death with the ring in his hand. Those facial, that range of facial expression, told everything that he was mm-hmm. thinking all at once. Yeah. And there was a there was a brief shining moment where I went, "That was better than Tolkien." Mm. Or the film, the film. Yeah. And in fact, there's one part in the film that took like 15 minutes when it showed all the uh, peaks lighting up. And it was taken from like two sentences in Tolkien. But it became, and it was one of the most powerful points in that film. So again, you could externalize just a moment that takes one or two sentences in the novel. And doesn't this say... That even the best material that you start with and then you adapt can actually be potentially improved. Yes. I think. Yes. I think. I think the adapter can, by bringing their vision into it, actually add something. I can mm-hmm. think of two films where, where that happens, and and mm-hmm. I'd love to know if you guys know of any more. But they're both baseball movies. I thought Field of Dreams was uh, better than Shoeless Joe. And I thought the natural mm. was oh, better yes. than the yes. natural. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. Film, f- both films were superior to the right. Jaws. Uh, I mean, oh, and this is popular. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, if you've ever read the novel Jaws, just don't. You know, it's just, <laughs> you know, don't do it. Just don't do it. Yeah. But here you took this kind of shoddy B novel, uh-huh. and you created one of the greatest. Yes. works of suspense mm-hmm. filmmaking ever made and part of it was once again like what you were talking about charlie the things you don't show mm-hmm. or waiting and waiting mm-hmm. a long time for the big reveal mm-hmm. and so here you take an an adapter who's very talented spielberg was able to make a kind of a masterpiece mm-hmm. out of something that wasn't a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. And of course, we all know that it can go the other way. You can take a masterpiece oh, of course. And, and you can turn it into something that's completely yeah. unwatchable. But, oh, oh but, definitely. But we don't, we shouldn't be afraid. We shouldn't be afraid. We should, if the question is, is Greta going to make a good one or not? The answer is, I don't know. <laughs> Well, but I am excited to find out. Right. But, uh, well, actually, I, I want to have, have that as, as the, the final question more so in, in a moment. But let's let's pause before we do wrap. And you were referencing, Crystal, uh, uh, a book you've done actually several here. But go ahead and just briefly tell about yourself. And I'll have a link for people to be able to um, learn more about you. Okay. 
Well, my PhD is in English literature from the University of California at Santa Barbara. And I specialized in, well, I'm kind of a dilettante. So at UCLA, I taught Shakespeare and uh, medieval drama, but I was commuting four hours a day to teach there. I wasn't getting any publishing done. So I got invited to teach at Messiah College in Pennsylvania. And there I started writing about Sayers, which is why I'm here at the Wade Center, since Sayers is one of our authors. But I, in my study of Sayers, I became interested in cultural theory, which led me to semiotic theory, which is the study of signs. And the one place where semiotic theory is still very strong is in film studies. So I started writing about film. And after publishing about 50 essays in both secular and Christian journals on film, I wrote my first film book. So it was my fourth book but it's called Salvation from Cinema, colon, the medium is the message, which is kind of what we're talking about. Yeah. Film is a different medium than a novel. If you're gonna have a film adaptation, it has to be different in several ways from mm -hmm. the novel. And um, part of what I'm arguing in that book is how Christians often reduce film to a content delivery system. <laughs> they pay no attention to the medium. Celluloid sermons. Yeah. 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 Yes, exactly. And you, you know, you extract. And many times, you know, if you see a character who's just kind of like this in a cruciform pose on the dirt, oh, that must be a Christ figure, when there's nothing else in the film to support it. That was... Uh, published as an emphasis on religion and film, they wanted me to extract a lot of the my <coughs> Christian discussion, one of the anonymous readers. This was for Rutledge, so a secular press, and they said, we want this as a, a book in universities that have religion and film classes. So please de-emphasize the Christianity, which at first depressed me, but then got me excited. How can I sneak past Watchful Dragons, as C.S. Lewis says? So I use Jacques Derrida and deconstruction, and basically Derrida saying that Christianity is the only religion that doesn't function by an economy of exchange, where do this, you get that. Mm -hmm. mm, yeah. That Christianity yeah, yeah. is the only religion that has a gift. But see, I'm citing Derrida, so he's, you know, uh -huh. he says, yes, I rightly pass for an atheist. But he was willing to question his own atheism. And then, so, and then another series book, and I just signed a contract for another book on film where I can use all my Christian material because I discovered here at the Wade that Dorothy Sayers loved film, and when her letters were published... Uh, four volumes, almost 2,000 pages, the editor left out every single letter where Sayers praised cinema. Oh, oh. Which is great for me yep. because that, so the title of this next book is The Wages of Cinema, <laughs> colon, looking through the lens of Dorothy Sayers. Oh, and that, I've got to get in, the, the Christian, the 
Christian implications that are in Greta Gerwig's Barbie movie, because it's very similar to Sayers. When Sayers, and it's filmed kind of like this bright heaven scene where Barbie meets her creator, mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Ruth Handler. And Barbie tells her, I want to make meaning, not just be a thing made. That is yeah. profound. Yeah. That's what all the Wade authors are doing. Yeah. They want to make meaning. And after she says, I want to make meaning, she says, you're my creator. Well, that's straight Dorothy Sayers, what she argues in what C.S. Lewis calls an indispensable book, um, The Mind of the Maker. She says that when we're told we're created in the image of God, male and female, he created them, Genesis 1.27. That means that the God who is described in Genesis 1 is a creator. So creativity, making meaning, is the Imago Dei. Jerry, tell us a little bit about yourself. So, uh, yeah, I'm a, I, I teach uh, at uh, Northwind uh, Theological Seminary. I'm both in the program of studies of the Inklings, which we call Romantic Theology, and in the Spiritual Formation program. And my biggest love, really, is in the connection between the arts and, and spirituality, mm. and how the two come together. Yes. Um, and, you know, I, uh, I love to read academic books, but then I love to translate them for everybody. Mm -hmm. And so my books are all written on a very popular level. Um, uh, I, I've written a biography of C.S. Lewis called Not a Tame Lion. Um, and I've also, uh, two of my books that I'm probably most proud of, recent books, 75 Masterpieces, Every Christian Should Know, mm -hmm. which is takes 75 representative pieces of art, music, literature, architecture, and film from the uh, Roman catacombs, the art in the Roman catacombs, all the way up to U2's Joshua Tree album. Uh, uh, yeah, and then um, and in my most recent book, and and something I'm talking about a lot these days is called "Discovering God Through the Arts." And in that book, I make the argument that the arts are quite literally one of the spiritual disciplines that we can use yes. to help us to understand our place in the world, to help us to discover God and how God is interacting with this strange, broken battered and majestic and beautiful world um, and that uh, the arts can help us do that mm -hmm. and so I'm encouraging people that you can learn more about how to pray you can read the Bible in a deeper way um, and all these different things that can happen as a result of uh, really engaging with the arts. Charlie tell us about yourself. Hi. Hi. I'm Charlie, <laughs> and I um, I write books that I feel like writing. I write books that um, are my current interest or the thing that's bubbling up in me at a particular moment. Um, and so there's there's not a central uh, theme, in, and I, I'm probably just too scatterbrained is probably what's wrong with that. But I'm happy to say that Two of my um, my two Bible study books are about to be republished under new titles. One of those is called Sacred Screaming, 
what to do when your problem is God. <laughs> and it's about, it's about wrestling with God. The other one will be called Even the Hero. And it's a study of the first eight chapters of Romans for really college-age people who don't like to read very much. So there's yeah. nice, short, succinct chapters that takes you through Paul's argument in Romans. Uh, the same publisher who is going to re-release those books has also re-released my, my singular children's fantasy, King Lesser Light's Crown. And of all my books, that's my favorite. Mm. Uh, and so I would love for people to take a look at that. I've written three books on C.S. Lewis. Uh, one involving Lewis manuscripts, or, a, or a speci especially a very mysterious manuscript called Light. Uh, one then is on Lewis's theory of myth, and the other on his theory of reality, and those are called The Fawn's Bookshelf and The Lion's Country. My, my Middle Earth, that is my fantastic world that has been with me throughout my entire lifetime, just as Tolkien had his own world, though mine isn't anywhere near as good, of course, um, is part of a series of science fiction books that I've been writing since the 80s. So this has just been a, a long mm -hmm. project of, of, of love and imagination in my secondary world. Uh, the first of those books is called The Heart of Light, and they are all about the tales of Solomon's Star. And for the last year or, or so, um, I've really set a lot of academic writing aside, although I've had to do a little bit, and I've just been working on the fourth novel, just having fun writing mm -hmm. a, a novel that is part archaeological mystery, part murder mystery, part theological pursuit of God, um, and um, part political intrigue. Um, and so I've just I've tossed a bunch of things together in a bag, and I'm really wondering if I'm going to... Have you ever, and I'm sure this is true for, for all of you sitting here, have you ever written something that was just a little bit too large to manage? Mm -hmm. oh, always. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's what I'm feeling right now. That's, that's what I'm going through right that's now. That's why Cicero said... Had I lived in long, had I lived longer, I would have written less. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's good. <laughs> well, uh, Terry, uh, you um, can only speak for yourself, but uh, as we wrap up here, um, the the final uh, thing, which uh, can be brief, is is Greta good or bad for Narnia? You shared your your thought. Go ahead and repeat that, and then we'll have the others. Uh, I say we don't know. We don't know until we see. Let's not be afraid. Let's not be afraid of, of these lovely books that we treasure. Let's let them let, let her have her way with them and see what happens. We may find them full of insight. We may find them frustrating. But let's just put a question mark there and be satisfied for that with that for right now. I would say first people need to read Terry's books on the importance of the arts for <laughs> Christians. Because I feel passionate about that as well. Maybe because I grew up in a home where, very fundagelical home, where the arts were a waste of time. Mm -hmm. I never entered an art museum till I was off at college. So, if we can train ourselves to look at the artistry of films, Rather than, as I said earlier, reduce them to a content delivery system worrying, oh no, she left out this bit. Oh no, that, that line was not in um, the original novel. Well, that's going to be true of any well-made adaptation. And so value what you see on the screen, the cinematography, and especially the editing. Editing is a powerful, powerful tool.
And what you see juxtaposed on the screen itself makes a statement. So all this to say, we have to wait and see. But I trust get Greta Gerwig. She knows filmmaking well enough. She has this history of really well-made films. So I am hopeful if she doesn't get too much harassment. I, um, my big question mark is, what is she even going to do? Netflix isn't telling us anything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So for all we know, we might get a film or a TV series from the world of Narnia that, has, that, that isn't no. doing the books at all. So we, we simply don't know. Um, and we actually might enjoy something like that um. more if we're, if we're in danger of being purists. But the, the thing that I do recall is my experience of, of the three Narnia films that were big budget. The first film I thought was a good movie and a faithful adaptation. The second film was a really a difficult, was a real difficulty, difficulty for me because I thought the adaptation was bad, but I still found myself enjoying the film. Mm. It was a good movie. Um, but not exactly an adaptation so much as a kind of a resemblance is the word that a, mm -hmm. a smart work study and I uh, came up with for that. But then by the third film, it was so far away from the book that um, I couldn't enjoy it even if I tried to focus on the, the cinematic side of things. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and probably part of that is because it was also a bad film. Uh, but, but, um, you know, they all have certain charming moments, right? And, and that's, um, I suppose that's part of what I've enjoyed about the, uh, uh, power, the rings of power on, on yeah. Amazon prime. There are scenes that you want to just, that you want to just enjoy. And, uh, you know, um, uh, so there were bits yeah. where I went, oh, that's such a great idea. It's not Tolkien, but it's Tolkien-esque. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> want, well, but most filmmakers can do that, getting yeah. it to cohere. Into a single, yeah, that's much more part. difficult. So I'm, I'm um, optimistic. I'm okay. hopeful. Well, hopeful is a better word. I'm hopeful. I don't know if I'm optimistic, but I certainly hope that, they're, that I'm going to enjoy them. Uh, well, excellent. Um, thank, uh, thank you, everyone, for being here. Thank you, Crystal, for being with me on the show today. A very fun conversation. Thank you. Uh, Terry? Hey, I just enjoyed getting to talk with two people smarter than me. <laughs> Charlie, great to have you again. I'm going to argue with Terry vehemently <laughs> over his claim that I'm smarter than he is. I'm certain it's the other way around. <laughs> but I'm glad to, be, glad to have been with these wonderful people and with you, William. I hope you enjoyed my mini-panel discussion with Drs. Crystal Downey, Terry Glaspie, and Charlie Starr. Let us know your thoughts about Narnia and Netflix. Is Greta Gorwick a good or bad choice? By leaving a comment. Also, comment on whether you agree or disagree with the perspectives of turning books into movies. Again, please note this was recorded in October 2023, so if you hear this much later, then there might be more known about what Netflix is doing. Although I will note that the last I heard, it was two movies were in the works, but Netflix does have the option of doing a series. Again, I'm William O'Flaherty. My podcast, All About Jack, has been around since 2011. My YouTube channel is called Knowing and Understanding C.S. Lewis. Be sure to check out my short feature called The Latest on C.S. Lewis that focuses on timely news. Check the description or show notes for links on how to learn more about my guest today, as each has been on my program before. 
Finally, everything I do related to Lewis is centralized at the website, EssentialCSLewis.com. And in case you didn't know, I have written two Lewis theme books. The misquotable C.S. Lewis was released in 2018. It examines 75 quotations credited to him that he either didn't write or paraphrases of something he did or without the context could be misunderstood. Then in 2016, my enhanced study guide to the screw tape letters came out. It's called C.S. Lewis Goes to Hell. Thanks again for listening. Please consider liking and sharing this episode with others. <music>